0: On this episode, we are making our early season review of Cup Crew Chiefs and their decision-making, including the updated standings of our Crew Chief Draft, which I'm sure you remember. We'll answer a great listener question on how to evaluate drivers, and then get to everything Talladega and more, including everywhere you do not want to be on Sunday. But first, this is episode 14 of Positive Regression. This is the Clint Boyer edition of Positive Regression. David, normally we go a little further back into the past, but Clint Boyer is the number 14 driver right now, and what will always be of interest to Positive Regression listeners, guess what age he is, David? Uh, he's 39 right now. He is 39 right now, so a driver that statistically average should be at his peak right now in terms of production. Why not talk about Clint Boyer? Why not? Never
1: has there been a more entertaining driver off the track who was simultaneously boring to watch <laughs> on the track. Uh, when was the last Clint Boyer highlight that didn't involve him on the microphone? It, it, he's, he's like watching paint dry uh, either way. He's had a, he's had a very productive career, um, a plus 0.376 P Roa coming into the 2019 season. Last year, uh, he was 39 for the majority of the year. So we can, uh, assume that that was the closest thing to his age of 39 season. Uh, and he delivered. He, he got two wins. Both of them, interestingly, had weather as an underlying theme. But he ranked 11th in peer with a 1.681 rating, which busted him out of a, uh, a perceived slump. You know, the best rating in his most recent four-year stretch. And Alan, as it plays into the race this weekend, he holds the distinction of the most Talladega victories during the polarizing tandem drafting era. He was the only driver to win uh, twice during a really weird time in NASCAR's history And I just noticed this this morning. Did you know he has the third highest odds to win this weekend? He didn't lead a single lap at Talladega in any of his last three starts. And I suspect the oddsmakers and those driving up the odds are putting a very weird emphasis on those races he won in a format that
0: no longer exists. They must be or the you know the the recency bias of last year at Talladega with the four Stewart-Haas cars just being up front the whole time. Uh, I don't know if that factors in all the changes we're going to see into Talladega, which we'll get into more of our preview, but Clint Boyer even if it's a few years ago, I guess a proven plate race extraordinaire, if you want to put him that way. At least he got some wins to his resume. There is that and I
1: you've been you've been mentioning this for a while. You've been gearing up he has a, a weird assortment of wins that have to do with his car number.
0: Yeah, uh, this is something we're going to look at later on this season at Race Hub. I don't know if we'll get to all of them on Race Hub, but an interesting piece of trivia, David. Clint Boyer has the last win for four different car numbers. Let me explain what that means. He has the last win for a number 14 car. He has the last win for the number 15 car. He has the last win for the number 33 car and he has the last win for the 07 car for that number in NASCAR history, which is a really odd distinction uh, over the course of a career to have four different final or at least the last win of those particular car numbers. So impress all your friends with that if you are a positive regression listener.
1: Good on Clint to just find his way into the record books somehow, right? Like there are Guinness records for the most bizarre stuff, and this is kind of
0: like that. Totally. Who is, is going to win in the 07 again? When is that going to happen? I don't know, and uh, and uh so maybe he'll hold that record for a long time. But speaking of all those different car numbers, maybe you don't have this, a specific uh statistical or analytical answer. The car he's in now, the ride and situation he's in, best of his career right now, or would you go back to those children's days? by
1: far the best of his career. If you're ever with a team that is frequently producing the fastest cars on the racetrack as Stuart Haas has dating back to the last five years, that's the ideal scenario, right? I think every race car driver from the short tracks and dirt tracks on up want a crack at the best equipment possible. And there's no arguing that Stuart Haas has been the class of the Cup Series field, uh for the most recent few years, even if the 14 car itself isn't, uh, it's clear that this is the best stuff he's ever had. Uh Richard Childress Racing was still trying to figure out some things post-Dale Earnhardt and post-testing ban, sorting through the COT when he was there. And he uh he took a spell, Michael Waldrop Racing was good, finished second in points for them. Uh H got Motorsports. Uh was a team that just was not pumping money into their own organization, so not great, but what a bounce back um this is a pretty solid way for him to i guess we'll say that this probably is the final stop for his career. This is a good way to go out. this is what you what you pine for when you
0: start out racing. That's what I was gonna ask about in terms of the situation he is with with uh, a quality team and reaching peak production age. If you're a Clinton Boyer fan, you have to expect your driver to get it done now or kind of never right.
1: If you're a Boyer fan, it's kind of put up or
0: shut up because this is, uh, it, it's not going to be this good too much longer. Episode 14 of Positive Regression, the Clint Boyer edition. We'll see what he can do with those good odds coming up this weekend at Talladega. Moving on, if you are a positive regression listener, have been since the beginning of the season, you know one of our early episodes started with a crew chief draft, and one of the things we love to look at, uh, and, and David, your website, Motorsports Analytics, loves to uh look into our crew chief statistics and the decisions that they make and how they can affect how many positions they can deliver to their driver, aside from what happens during green flag conditions in terms of on the racetrack, uh, when you decide to pit and how during a green flag cycle is up to the crew chief, and that can make or break uh in terms of delivering positions. It can really stand out at the end of a season when you see just how much decisions factor in and how many de- positions they can deliver on the racetrack, and that is something you monitor. Early on in the season, we made our uh, picks in a crew chief draft of who we thought may be the best decision makers uh, on top of the box each week, and uh, you're tracking that. And David, how are we doing? Well, you're winning, uh, <laughs> yes.
1: by, by, a, by a pretty significant margin. Ooh, your, nice. your team consists of Johnny Klaus Alan Gustafson, Chad Knauss, and Chad Johnston. Uh, that quartet has combined for 17 positions on the racetrack this season. That's it. Uh, the counter to that. Uh, oh no, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's going to get bad. Uh, <laughs> my four crew chiefs, which are Luke Lambert, Danny Stockman, Trent Owens, and Randy Cox, have combined for a lean mean negative 43 spots. I'm not happy with that, but here's where it's going to get a little bit closer and a little more interesting. With the Daytona 500 omitted, and this is the case with plate tracks uh, and road courses Those positions gained and lost during green flag pit cycles skew so volatile. With the Daytona 500 omitted, Alan, your score is negative 19. Mine is negative 20. So we're kind of neck and neck on on how things shake out at the normal tracks. This weekend at Talladega is an opportunity for things to go crazy again. So we want to keep our eyes peeled on uh, what some of these crew chiefs do. But I want to take a look at your top performer, for Team Allen, Allen Gustafson, <laughs> Alan Gustafson on behalf of Chase Elliott, eighty percent retention is uh, that makes them the highest ranked team inside the top twenty in central speed. They are not losing many spots on pit road under green. They gained forty six positions in the Daytona five hundred alone. We talked about. Elliott's performance in the 500, immediately after it happened, it was so strong, and it was a, a, a team-wide showing. They just did not get the result. It was such a bizarre ending. He crashed three times uh, in the red zone during that race, and he only did that once all year in 2018. Just didn't get the, the result commiserate with their team-wide effort. But at the, the remaining tracks, after Daytona, their positional gain is plus two. In the eight other races, I, I break down the timing of green flag pit stops into five categories. Short pitting, extreme short pitting, long pitting, extreme long pitting, and the middle, the most populated lap or few laps during a cycle, I simply refer to as the flow. Gustafson has pitted in the flow with the majority of traffic 100% of the time wow. this year. He has been super conservative, which considering Chase Elliott's struggles with passing and restarts this year, it's kind of interesting. I don't know how much longer Gustafson can do this if Elliott's struggles continue, but so far it has been effective and whatever spots they have, uh, whatever track position they have on the track... Gustafson isn't losing that. That has been so far all on the driver. If that doesn't change, if Chase Elliott does not improve, I'm kind of curious to see what Alan Gustafson does to adjust his strategy. And they take some bigger swings outside of just pitting the flow of traffic.
0: Essentially what we're saying is if the driver can't get positions on the track, we talked about passing last week, that it can be Found in the pits, and that can be done by when you choose to pit during a green flag cycle, and that's what we talk about being aggressive. Maybe Alan Gustafson can start being aggressive and giving his driver some spots to work with. Is that what you, is that how we can explain it?
1: Yeah, and if it's only a, a plus two positional game, that kind of that's in line with with what they've done uh, with this conservative approach. They don't want to lose the positions they have, but. As it gets closer to the start of the playoffs and depending on where Elliott is in points and if he doesn't have a win, you've got to start taking some of those big swings, especially at the end of a race. If you can't rely on your driver to go out and make those positions happen on your own or if your car is just unable to cut it from a speed standpoint, you've got to do something a little weird. You've got to do something out of the ordinary uh, in order to leapfrog some of these cars ahead of you in the running order. Now, there is a downside to being so aggressive. My worst performer is Luke Lambert. And so far, on behalf of Daniel Hemrick, he has scored a 57% position retention rate. I don't think I'm surprised. I shouldn't be because his retention rate on behalf of Ryan Newman in 2018 was also 57%. But the, the difference between this year and last year, last year... Lambert was able to mitigate the positional loss much better. He took some big swings with his calls. They only lost three positions on the whole for the year. So far this year, negative 21 from Lambert. And one of the reasons for that is he has only pitted with the flow of traffic 64% of the time. He's short pitted twice, and he's long pitted three times. It is understandable why Lambert would want to be so aggressive on strategy with Daniel Hemrick still getting situated in the Cup Series, but that rate suggests uh, not much of what he's doing has worked. Uh, same with Danny Stockman, fellow RCR crew chief, 40% retention. RCR's smart pit strategy from the last few years seems to have disappeared or it's just not having the same effect. And another crazy thing, it's kind of all on Lambert. It, it's pretty much, or, or the team, I should say, no pass-through penalties accrued by this team this year. Uh Daniel Hemrick has not uh, had a speeding penalty during a green flag pit cycle, so there have not been any big mistakes in that regard. This has fallen all on strategy, so I hope for the sake of Team David, that this corrects itself. But I also want to see Daniel Hemrick uh, being given some boosts in the running order and see what this eight team can do. Because in the past, Luke Lambert has been one of the most creative strategists we've seen in the sport. For you, Alan, that's great for essential storytelling.
0: Absolutely. And uh, one thing, the eight the team is just not... I think Daniel Emmerich will attribute some of it to luck and just bad days. They're just not having the season that they expected, especially when you have someone like Luke Lambert making the calls and that's had success. Uh, seeing him not helping your team, David, and the crew chief draft is, uh, was a bit surprising. Uh, anyone out there so far, nine races into the season, uh, any crew chiefs, you know, not on either of our teams that we drafted standing out in terms of decision making?
1: This past offseason, I asked someone, close to Roush Fenway. What was the best thing right now about Roush Fenway racing? And his answer was Brian Patty, uh, the crew chief of the 17 car. Patty is a swashbuckler of a crew chief working within a fairly straight laced environment. He's a good leader. His crew would follow him to the ends of the earth. Uh, his driver, Ricky Stenhouse has bought in and Patty has always been a crafty strategist, the position retention isn't great. It's 53%. But Patty has gained Stenhouse 17 positions in total. 23 of those are with Daytona omitted. Wow. Uh, Patty has pitted with the flow of traffic 80% of the time, but his gambles, and he does do it, have come with precision, he short pitted from third place at Las Vegas, kind of crazy and certainly abnormal from considering what other crew chiefs did in that race and at that track historically. But they retained that running position. That was a heck of a call right there, uh, especially when you're up in the front of the field, pitting from the top five, the The likelihood of losing those positions far greater than any uh, any other position in the running order. And another rare stop outside the flow of traffic, came at Texas. Long pitting while running 21st, got the caution, gained Stenhouse 10 spots, just an excellent call. You're you're moving your driver up the running order to track that they just don't have the necessary speed for. Could Brian Patty stand to have more of a shotgun approach to strategy, especially considering Stenhouse? Perhaps. And that would increase that retention rate
0: but the rifle approach that he has is paying out right now. Interesting stuff. And, and okay, if that gamble doesn't play off at Texas, that, that affects his numbers though, doesn't it? Is, is some of this swashbuckling kind of come down to a little bit of a gamble? Or what would we see if that caution doesn't come out? For one, if you're pitting late in
1: a cycle, you are assuming that tire wear is not a factor. But you're also betting on the caution to come. And in this particular scenario, he, along with a few other teams uh, on this particular cycle, it was the second one of the Texas race, bet on the long pit and won in a big way. And that was sort of this mid-race changing of the guard within the running order. Kind of interesting, but that was the right call and considering he's a guy that this year has
0: rarely made those kinds of calls. He picked the exact time to do it. Good stuff. Good stuff. And we will keep track of this all season. We're only quarter of the way through nine races into the 36 race cup season. We will keep you updated on who the good decision makers are. And hopefully I keep winning our crew chief draft standings, (laughs) but. Oh no. (laughs) Moving on, uh, next up, a question from Todd Hutchison on Twitter. Uh, a great question, actually, from a nice listener. Have you ever, the question is, quote, have you ever developed an adjusted average finishing position, the AAFP, <laughs> which would remove DNFs from a driver's average when they were not at the fault of the driver? Specific example, getting caught up in someone else's wreck. Essentially, David, you do driver evaluation. Uh, you measure their production and how they are performing out there on the track. Essentially, the question is, do you factor in or can you factor out when, if a driver gets caught up in a wreck, not of his or her doing, uh, should that be counted against them? Essentially, I guess is what Todd is asking. And is there a metric for that? How do you look at a situation like that?
1: Well, you can. Um, I would ask, why would you? Uh, for, for something like a mechanical DNF production and equal equipment rating has, And equipment handicap that suffices. And I know Chris Mitchell, also of motorsports analytics, removes mechanicals from his prospect models, but omitting races where crashes took place is a very slippery slope. I believe if you're involved in an accident, not of your making, you're still very much at fault. And I have some specific examples that I point to when explaining this stance in 2008. Tony Stewart was taken out in a crash at Dover that was started by Elliot Sadler. Uh, Stewart was asked afterwards in the media scrum, uh, whether he was mad at Sadler and he responded with something to the effect of, no, I'm mad at myself. We should have never been running that deep in the field. And I know better than to drive near Elliot Sadler because, you know, it wouldn't be a Stewart interview without a zinger. Right. (laughs) Um, Last month, Kurt Busch uh, said on social media that he avoids Ricky Stenhouse at all costs. That's a smart plan, considering Stenhouse had the highest crash frequency in the series in 2018. Uh, one current driver, who I will protect his identity, personally told me last year that whenever he sees Trevor Bain in front of him and he noticed Bain pulling side by side with another car, uh, his reaction uh, was and is to back out of the throttle. In his mind, killing his lap time is better than potentially killing his car. And all of these examples, to me, are demonstrations of awareness. If you're frequently caught in the messes of other drivers, it tells me you lack awareness. Let's consider Ty Majeski. He crashed 15 times in 15 Xfinity Series races over the last two years. Towards the end of last year, he vented his frustrations about Ryan Reed, who had taken him out, uh, in a number of those crashes uh, around the end of the season. And, and look, I, I understand why that the frustration is, is understandable and relatable. But the book has been out on Ryan Reed for a while. And if you know he's a weapon and you still don't cautiously approach him and a wreck occurs, that's on you. You know, a young driver I worked with, uh, along one of my agency stops crashed out of a short track race. And afterwards his dad was throwing a pity party, uh wrong place, wrong time. Why us? And I wasn't having it. I told him what I think he needed to hear, which was that his son spent 25 laps driving side by side with a driver who crashed twice that day in practice and once earlier in the race his son should have been more aware. His spotter should have been aware. And that this is where a good spotter would key the radio and say, Hey, let's not spend too much time around this guy. And any of our listeners lucky enough to have a scanner at a NASCAR race, you'll hear something to this effect. Uh, But instead, this young driver spent a quarter of a 100 lap race tempting fate and got involved in a crash that was inevitable. So no, for me, (laughs) adjusting for crashes feels to me like a bailout. Uh, of course, there are some instances beyond a driver's control, but they're rare. Uh, if Landon Castle, a guy who rarely, if ever, crashes, blows a tire and spins and wipes you out in the process, yeah, that is a bad beat. That is something that you probably could not have foreseen. But for the most part, the situations leading into crashes, not of your doing, are avoidable.
0: And I I feel like the same way in terms of, and it's very, it's not analytical and and as in depth as yours, but it seems like it would just average out, right? I mean, it's racing. You're going to get caught up at some point in another wreck that's not of your doing. But it seems like if, if you have good production, if you are a quality, talented driver, the good will far outweigh the bad in terms of the impression that you give to either the fan base on a very shallow level or when you give a hard look at the numbers in terms of production. I just feel like the good will ultimately outweigh the bad if you are a quality driver. So uh, taking out a natural part of racing, which is avoiding wrecks and getting caught up in other people's uh, incidents, uh, seems like something that, that should be measured. And I like the way you put it, slippery slope and trying to factor that out. I mean, and that would make you the, the judge of, uh, intent, right? I mean, I'm sure there are, there, there are some clear incidences, like you just mentioned that the hypothetical of someone blowing a tire and you are nowhere to go, you know, we hear that all the time in racing. Oh, I had nowhere to go, just got caught up in it, but it's not always that black and white.
1: No, it's not. And there's a term I use in evaluation called deliberate aggression, Kevin Harvick is one of the most aggressive race car drivers I have ever seen, and he rarely crashes. He has low crash frequencies every year, and there's a reason for that. He picks his spots. He picks his moments when he's aggressive, but he's also acutely aware of some of the drivers on the racetrack that act as landmines. He knows how to avoid them. That's intelligence. That is awareness. And in in modern-day NASCAR, yeah, you, I, I want a smart driver. I want a driver to be able to not, not wad up my car. I know that we've incentivized wins, but at the same time, is, is one position on a racetrack worth, uh,
0: getting crashed over? No, 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 it's not. Perfect week to talk about wrecks as we head into Talladega. I know, David, that's not what we like to think about Talladega, but that, that is the reality of super speedway racing, no longer restrictor plate racing, but you had a great, interesting article, an article you've done before and you have kept up on it in terms of uh, crashing and Talladega, and the big one, or Daytona included, I'm sure, but uh, essentially the big one. You have tracked and charted uh, where you want to be and the safest spots. Uh, go into that a little bit because if you read the article, you certainly learned a lot, but there's a lot to take away from it as we look to how a potential race or strategy can play out at, at a race some people think is just all a crapshoot sometimes, and it clearly is not.
1: Yeah, the big one only takes out A portion of the field when it happens, but the threat of the big one informs the strategy of every team. Arguably, the threat of the accident is more important than the accident itself. But a few highlights from the article, and I do want our listeners to go to nascar.com and give it a read, but the lead at Talladega is valuable, more so than usual. There have been 24 crashes consisting of four or more cars at Talladega dating back to 2013, and none of those was the leader actually involved? The middle of the field should be avoided. Positions 9 through 26 averaged a 37% inclusion rate across those 24 crashes. And 13th and 17th uh, place in the running order were caught in half of those. So think, think of that, Alan. If a crash breaks out and you're running 13th, you have a coin flips chance at being involved. Uh, and the rear of the field, positions 31 through 40, were caught in, on average, 5% of the crashes during this time frame. If you can't run up front, and sometimes that is very hard to do, it also depends on where you qualify, you should consider running in the rear. It isn't sexy. You're not getting much sponsor exposure from being back there, and and you won't get stage points. But it is an effective strategy. You cannot win the race if you aren't in the race. And that's, you know, that, uh, all of this, all these machinations are something that exist at Talladega that don't necessarily exist at Daytona. Uh, and if I may, teams are at least able to execute a planned strategy at Talladega. If our listener is going to take anything away from this episode, it's this, Daytona and Talladega are not the same track, not even close. At this point, you may as well lump Atlanta and Homestead together because I think they're equally similar. Um, but forget about the, the lack of decorum at Daytona for a minute. That uh, That hasn't permeated Talladega's races yet, which is good. Talladega is a much wider track, and it does not place such an emphasis on handling. And dare I say, it is tamer. It's probably counter to the beliefs of fans, but since 2013, Daytona had 39 of these big crashes. Uh, that's 15 more than Talladega over the same time frame. And per 500 miles, Daytona averaged one more crash. So Daytona had 3.3 crashes per 500 miles. Talladega averaged just two. And this kind of order, which is a weird word to use when mm-hmm. discussing Talladega, I'm aware, Uh that order is what made Stuart Haas' strategy last fall uh, to block off the, the front of the field, keep the leader protected. That order is what made this viable. And it's why no one has had much success when attempting the same thing at Daytona, because it isn't the same track. You can game plan around the big one at Talladega. At Daytona, even with all the educated guesswork, you just can't, at least not until the race is started and the attrition has begun. This is one of the reasons I like Talladega. I think so many people sleep on it. And like you said, the assumption is that it's a crapshoot, but you can make some educated guesses and position yourself to the point where you can have a good shot at avoiding these big multi-car crashes that have become the event signature.
0: And if you read the article, you will see David breaks down position by position in terms of its safety and uh, uh, where you want to be cautious. David, I don't think it, it would—I don't think it surprise you. Frankly, or it would surprise anybody. You know, if you're way, if you're out front, that's safe. If you're way in back, that's safe. If you're in the middle, that's where the majority of the cars are, just number wise. It may be more dangerous. But did anything surprise you as someone who tracks this? For, you know, from race to race and year to year.
1: Talladega has not experienced the same level of lawlessness that Daytona has. For one, Daytona has seen cars uh, leave the middle of the field and escape to the front because a similar dynamic uh, previously existed. Actually third place used to be the safest running position at Daytona across the last three years. It has become the most dangerous running place just because that front pack has become overpopulated and drivers have been uh, more reactive than proactive. It's crash before getting crashed. And at Talladega, they're more diligent about protecting themselves in addition to their running positions. I think it's just the fact that it's tamer um, and it just has not succumbed to the things that have made Daytona really tough to watch at times over the past few years. I don't feel that way at all about Talladega. Even when we get into some of the best drivers at the track, Brad Keselowski has won in 25% of his Talladega starts. That's a greater winning percentage than Dale Earnhardt. Joey Logano has won uh, in 17% of his starts. That's a better winning percentage than Jeff Gordon. You already have two guys that are historically great at a facility that everyone thinks
0: uh, has volatile races. Uh, As we look to our Talladega, uh, something we always do every week, we try to preview, uh, give a different kind of preview. So what do you want to see this weekend, David, when you're watching Talladega? What do you expect out of this race? What do you want to see? I'd
1: like to see the last 20 laps go green, uh, just so we can see differing strategies executed in full. But I doubt we're getting that. Uh, in, in lieu of the, the the last twenty laps going green, I'm interested in seeing when the winning pass is made. Assuming that there is a late restart, and that's probably a good assumption, any move that needs to be made within the lead pack probably needs to be made with about five to seven laps to go. I think the race for the win will also involve positioning on the final restart. There is going to be a sweet spot on the final lengthy run in which the play for the lead can happen with the hopes that clean air and history's crash inclusion rates fall in your favor. Uh, so that move could be checkmate for all intents and purposes.
0: Kind of doing a cop out here. I apologize to the audience and to you, David, but a few weeks ago, we asked this question. What do you want to see? I forget what track exactly it was. I think it was just after Texas. And I said... I want to see the Chevys show up and contend and win a race because it's more exciting when there are more players at the front of this field that are contending for wins and competing against the Penske's and Joe Gibb Racings of the world. And guess what? It hadn't happened. So I'm going with the same exact thing again. I would. I hope. What do I want to see? I want to see the Chevys up there again. Uh, Hendrick, Kurt Busch, all them competing for the win on Sunday because I think it just makes it, again, more exciting. And I go back. We talked about Daytona earlier, uh, that uh this year's Daytona 500, David. And without some of that impatience, without some of those wrecks at the end, the Hendrick cars were there. Chase Elliott was there. William Byron was running well. There was great speed that they had in qualifying that was translating into the race, and I felt like they were there at the end only to be taken out. I hope they can do that again. I would like to see that again. More players at the end of a race make for a better race. That is what I want to see. So I've got
1: a question for you. You know, we saw this past week, Chip Ganassi on Twitter suggest that Chevrolet is just not as competitive as the Fords and Toyotas. Even if they win, let, let's say that happens this weekend. Is that enough to satisfy you? Is that enough to satisfy the Chevrolet's teams? Because, this kind of racing we don't see every weekend. does it answer some of the questions we have about chevrolet no. i mean i don't I don't know that the concern well, goes away it, right? no it definitely doesn't
0: go away because we, we you know just we've seen that we're realistic here i mean this is the <laughs> this isn't the pie in the sky uh kind of podcast. We know what we're talking about here on positive regression uh, uh, uh I've w- almost called it a plate race. It's no longer a plate race, but a super speedway race is not indicative of much. I just want to see some competitive racing at the end. Uh, win helps. Win, winning helps, obviously, just about everything. It doesn't solve all your problems, but just uh, h- having that in the win column gives us something to talk about for the Chevys, but it doesn't solve your problems on the mile and a half. Uh, still plenty of uh, work to be done there. I just want to see some more players up there. I don't want to see one through seven be, uh or one through what, eight, be three Penske cars and five Toyotas. You know what I mean? I, I don't want that anymore. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or a review. That helps this podcast gain some visibility. Your help in spreading the word, always appreciated. If you have questions, we would love to answer them here on the podcast. Make sure you reach out to us on Twitter at POSREGPOG, P-O-S-R-E-G. P O D, uh, make sure you watch race hub this week. I will be talking. If you're again, if you're listening this on Thursday morning, we appreciate it. That means you're a subscriber. Make sure you watch race hub tonight on Thursday, because I'm interviewing Matt DiBenedetto, the driver who led the most laps in the Daytona 500 and had some interesting stuff to say about his season that started well and went downhill after that. So that will be on race hub on FS one. David, what are you working on? We talked about my article on
1: NASCAR.com strategizing around the big one, but I also ranked Talladega's 10 greatest drivers
0: for NASCAR.com. It's a fun slideshow. And uh, make sure you keep listening to Positive Regression. We appreciate it. Uh, this has been a fun ride so far, so we appreciate all the listeners and tell all your friends about it because this is Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavanaugh. Stay positive, everybody. Have a great weekend.